Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So we are traveling through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to seek to cover chapter 5 today. So for the record, uh, this is October 15th, and this is Lesson 7, uh, covering Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 20. Let's pray, and then we'll look at the text. <clears throat> Our Father, now we thank you for, the, for gathering us together today, and all that that means to us, that we are your beloved children, we're your gathered people, we're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and so we praise you and thank you for that is all you're doing, it's not our are doing, but you've given us a desire and a will to be here today, and we thank you for it. Now, we come as very needy people, more needy than we know, and so we pray you would minister to us by your Spirit, and uh, the wonderful uh, water of your Word, the bread of your Word, and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So thank you for each person that's here today, and I pray you would encourage them and all of us, exhort us where we need to be exhorted, and and may, the, uh, may our time together uh, show us your glory and your majesty and your grace and kindness to us in our Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, last week we observed that, uh, that chapters 1 through 3, the writer, uh, we believe is Solomon, was focused on himself, so we called those, we called that the me chapters, chapters one through three. And then we notice that in chapter four, something happened, something was different. And he began to see the need for others, for the need for community in his toil and, and in, his, in his life. So uh, one of our authors, I think David Gibson said, he went from me to we. And uh, that was really refreshing to see that. And now in chapter five, we see another transition, another Another growth. By the way, I'm not studying ahead. I, I mean, I've read ahead and tried to get a, a big picture, but I don't know what's going to happen next. But um, but it's wonderful to see this this um, uh, growth in his perspective. And and I, and what we're going to see, I believe, in chapter five will be a, a new perspective for him, and that is a, a new awareness of uh, of the Lord. And I think. Maybe what he's seen here in the past, he's, he's seen two or three times now, it is a gift of God for us to be able to, to rejoice in our work and to enjoy each day that's before us. And perhaps he's beginning to see this is God's grace. He didn't go looking for that. God gave him that perspective. So maybe he's seeing God's grace here. And so um, what is the response when we see God's grace? Well, it's worship. And that's what we're going to see here in this in this chapter, I think, particularly at the beginning of it. So I thought uh, that uh, that we could say chapters one through three are me, chapters four is we, and chapter five is the. You know, King James the. Okay. <clears throat> I knew that wouldn't go too good, and I was right. <clears throat> so let's look. Let's look at it. Uh, well, here's a little little bit of an outline. <laughs> 
for you. Oh, and so, so what we see in chapter five, um, before I think Solomon's been, been um, he's been observing God's grace, but now he's going to find a, a, a more clear uh, personal engagement with the Lord that he hadn't expressed before. We're going to see it in the beginning, these first uh, seven verses, and then I think we'll see it right at the end also. So you can see verses one through seven has to do with worship. And then uh, the next uh, two sections, he returns to subjects he's already talked about before. Uh, oppression, verses 8 and 9, the love of money and its consequences, verses 10 through 17. And then again, he, he talks about the gift of God, but he does some things here he hadn't done before. So we'll, we'll see some more development there. So verse, uh, verses uh, 1 through 7 on worship. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, then, one through three, then we'll look at it. By the way, I think the, the context of this, as you see it, would be a worship at the temple that Solomon has, has built. Um, but for us in the New, Te- in the new Covenant, uh, we don't have a temple to go to. Uh, he even talks here about the house of God. You may say, well, this is our house of God. Well, sort of. Be careful with that. This is not a sacred place in the sense that the temple was uh, it, it becomes sacred in the sense when God's people meet here and God's presence is here among us. But, um, but going to the house of God is entering into the presence of God. And it could be in our private worship time, uh, quiet time at home, or it could be with, um, with a brother or sister one-on-one, or it could be a corporate worship like we're, like we're having here. And as uh, Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, she said, we all worship here, we worship there. And Jesus said, um, no longer. And he disengaged worship from a geographical location. And he said, God seeks those to worship him in spirit and in truth. So he, he took away the geography and, uh, and made it a, a hard issue for each, each worshiper. So even though we don't have a temple to go to, there's some wonderful things we can learn uh, in this passage about Worshiping God, being in His, uh, being in His presence. So, verses one through uh, three, Ecclesiastes five one through three. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. So, let's start right at the beginning. Guard your steps. Guard your steps. Anybody have a different version besides guard your steps? (coughs) Watch your step, I think. is. Be careful what you do. Be careful what you do, okay. Good. So these are particular words. Uh, guard your steps. What, what comes to your mind when you hear somebody coming into the presence of God and being told to guard their steps? <coughs> Maybe a flaming bush. Remember that? Remember with, with Moses? And uh, when he saw the flaming bush, he turned aside. And, and what did God, what did the Lord say to him? Take off your shoes. Why? Why did he say take off your sandals? 
Yeah. He was on holy ground. Holy ground, huh? So, holy ground, you know, that, that word holy means can be mean pure, but also the, the root word means uh, separate and unique and different. So God's saying to to uh, Moses, uh, you're in a you're in a uh, sacred spot, sacred space. So take off your shoes. Uh, also, think I thought about the uh, the seraphim. Were they seraphim in Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah six. The seraphim they had six feet, and with you know, they had six had six wings. Right, six wings, two feet, two eyes. So with two of their wings, they covered their eyes, and with two they flew. But what did they do with the other two wings? They covered. They covered their feet. I don't know why, but um, maybe something about this helps us to understand that. And then what did they? What What was their anthem as they flew around the, the throne? The little twice, holy, holy, holy. Holy. So, um, I don't know what this means exactly, but it means uh, be careful. Don't rush into God's presence. I think uh, there's an interesting, interesting piece of the format here, because this this section goes through verse uh, seven. So look at verse seven. So it may be that, uh, like the, the Bible scholars call this an inclusio, the, the beginning of it and the ending of it, maybe this is kind of a form of Hebrew parallelism saying the same thing. Guard your feet means uh, fear God, be in the fear of God. And as we read through these, these uh, texts, I think we will, <clears throat> we will see, um, we will see that uh, sense of, uh, of the fear of God, of the gravity, of being in God's presence. So, and the other thing we're going to see here real clearly is we're going to see the contrast between speaking many frivolous words and listening. So watch that as we, we go through it. We're going to talk about the negative side, side first. So, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not they do not know that they're doing evil. So what in the world is a sacrifice of fools? Well it's a sacrifice of some kind. And for show only. Okay, good, Elaine, for show only, yeah. Look look uh, just turn over just a few pages to Isaiah. And look at um, Isaiah chapter one. <coughs> All the prophets, well, maybe not all of them, many of the prophets were concerned about this, this uh, hypocritical worship. They were going through all, the, all of the emotions, um, but, it was, but it was hypocritical. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, <clears throat> What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come to appear before me who has required of you this trampling of my courts. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. 
new, new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. Then just flip over to chapter 29, you'll see a very familiar passage because the Lord Jesus uh, quotes it when he's confronting uh, the Pharisees with their empty worship. So Isaiah 29, uh, 13, And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by, taught by men. Remember, Jesus said this, he quoted that verse when he was confronting the, the Pharisees and their empty uh, rituals. So, um, back to Ecclesiastes 5. So notice that um, Solomon says they don't even know that they're doing evil. So this is a, quite a, quite a uh, condemnation that their empty worship in God's perspective is evil. You ever struggle with that? You go through the outward motions but your heart is not engaged? Oh, I do. I'm, you know, sometimes in the worship service, I'm thinking about maybe the next thing I'm supposed to be doing is the, you know, to close the service or something, and I'm singing the words up on the screen, but I'm thinking about something else. My heart is not engaged in that. Or sometimes even uh, in our prayer meeting here on, on the morning, um, somebody else is praying a verbal, you know, a, a, a vocal prayer, and uh, my heart's not in it. I'm thinking of something else, so. This is an admonition for all of us to engage, uh, to engage our hearts when we're seeking to engage the Lord. Remember what Samuel said to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, uh, when, when that was after the, the attack of the Amalekites and God says, wipe out all the animals and everything. And remember Saul brought back, he said some of the best. Well, he said the people did it. He, he was trying to get out of it, but uh, so he said, I brought the best of the, of the uh, sacrifices, to, to sac of the animals to sacrifice. And what did, uh, what, what did the prophet Samuel say? To, get to obey is better. Yeah, to obey is better than sacrifice, that's right. Um, and interestingly, I, I wrote it down here as as uh, Brett began to quote the statement, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. So we're going to talk about listening here in a few minutes. So listening involves not only attention, but it involves obedience. Okay, so we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. Okay, let's look at these next two, two statements. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So look at these two statements. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before. 
I think about uh, James 1, where James says, uh, be quick to hear, and be quick to listen, but slow to speak. And I've always thought about that in, you know, talking to somebody after the service or, you know, in some kind of conversation. That's his, particularly in our counseling ministry, more listen. You know, you need to listen before you speak. But I've never thought about it in our, in our conversation with God. What, what we see in, this, in these verses here, we're seeing a conversation with God. It, can, it should be worship, but it's a conversation with God. So obviously there's two parts of the conversation. There's listening and hearing what the other person says and then uh, speaking. So I never thought about that in my conversation with God. But I think, it's, I think that's what Solomon is doing here. He's applying... Well, he's not applying James because James is applying him. But, but, uh, but in our conversation with God, we we speak and we listen. But uh, the order of them is important. Listen first, and then uh, and then we speak. Well, uh, so the conclusion of this section is. But we might go back to that that uh, verse about the well we should we should do that first and the, the reason why why we should listen first and speak second and be careful about our words engage oh I didn't even talk about the rash of not do not be rash with your mouth and don't be hasty with your heart um, I think maybe that's another one of those Hebrew parallelisms. He's saying the same, same thing. Don't be rash. Uh, don't be hasty. The word rash with your mouth and hasty with your heart. The, ra- the words rash, rash, and hasty are pretty much synonyms. You could even switch them around and it wouldn't really change the, the meaning. But notice the connection. What's the connection between the heart and the mouth? Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, or out of the, the yeah, out of the heart, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So, I think we see that connection there. So, even though the mouth speaks, uh, the real issue is the heart. So, we want to engage our hearts as we come into God's God's presence. Oh, and then, um, so why? Why? It gives the reason why we need to be careful as we come into God's presence. And that is because of the transcendence of God. God's up there, we're down here. God is, uh, says God is in heaven, and you, your little piece of dust, you're on earth. And so keep your, you know, keep your perspective there as you come into God's presence. Be careful because God is, God is the great uh, majestic one. I, uh, when I want to learn, think more about uh, the attributes of God, I uh, I go to A. W. Pink. I know there's Sharnock and it's 800 pages long, but I don't have time to read 800 pages. But I go to A. W. Pink, and uh, he's he he starts his his first attribute of God is the solitariness of God, the aloneness of God, that he is. And he, he talks about you realize there was a time, if you could call it time, when all there was was God. There was nothing else. And he was completely satisfied and happy in himself. And he still is, is the point. He's, 
he's transcendent, he's different than we are. Now he's eminent too, obviously, but the transcendence is the important, important thing here. So recognize, as we come into God's presence, I think he's saying here, as he's been saying in other ways, recognize our creatureliness, our creaturely uh, limitations, our finiteness as we come uh, into God's presence, <laughs> who we are and who, who he is. Well, so the conclusion is, uh, let your words uh, be few. And this is contrasting with, um, with the listening. With listening, it's okay to speak to God, but we must do so carefully and reverently with the heart engaged. But listening to God is better and should precede our talking. So we should listen to God before we seek to speak to God. So what does that mean? How, how do you do that? You hear anything? I mean, how do we, how do we listen to God? And Spending time in the Bible. Okay, good, Pi. Mm-hmm. Pi hit it right on, the, right on the nail as far as I'm concerned. She said spending time in the Bible. Now, if you and I have a conversation, how do you listen? Or how do I listen to you? I listen to your to your words. I don't know any other way to, I mean, I can look at your body language or whatever, but I listen to your words. And that's the same thing uh, with our Lord. How do we listen to God? Uh, We hear Him through His His Word. So, how do you listen to God's Word? You read it? Okay. You want to expand on that? Any... uh, Time. You you read the words in the Bible. You read the words and okay, good. How often should you? I mean, every six months or Saturday night before church or give or take. <laughs> okay. All right, we've covered that one. All right, what? How else did we listen to preaching the word? The preaching of the word we hear. We hear the word taught. Good. That's good. Memorize. We memorize the word. Somebody else said that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. We memorize. If we don't know it, the Lord can't bring it to mind. Good. We memorize it could be, the word. It could be in the pages, but if you don't know it, it's useless. Yeah. Putting the Bible under your pillow at night doesn't really accomplish anything except give you something else to have on your head. Um, there's another discipline that I want you to think about for a minute. We read the word, we hear the word, we memorize the word. Meditate. We meditate on the word. Rick, I still remember when, when uh, you exhorted me. We were uh, we were talking about the scripture meditation. All your children have done that, and I said, "Well, I'm really, I really love uh, Zalius. He's just way ahead of everybody else, and I know you're helping her with it." And, and you said, "Well, I'm okay with scripture med- with, with scripture memory, but the more important discipline is meditation." And I think that really is, really is true. Scripture memory may come before meditation, but nothing more important than meditation. I, uh, I read uh, George Mueller, you know George Mueller, the, the German man that had the orphanages in the last century. And um, he said that his morning discipline, that before he prayed or read this, the passage of Scripture he was supposed to read that day, was that he meditated on the word. And he said something like, and I meditate till my heart is happy. And I thought, I'm gonna try that. 
oh boy, that's a lot harder work than, than I've ever imagined. Because meditation requires two things that we are in short supply today. Time and, att and attention. Concentration. Yeah. So it is hard work. But I, and you can, you can say that you can detest this too if you've meditated on the Word. It is hard work, but it is well worth the investment for what God does in our hearts as we meditate. I, um, uh, I have a little lesson here that I did one time on meditation. And I, I got eight or ten of them if you'd like to have this, if you haven't thought about meditation lately. So here's John Owen. He meditated on Scripture. I'll just read this, these four or five points to you. First of all, you fix your mind and your thoughts on the text. Read the text slowly, repeatedly. Ask the text questions. What does the text say about God, man, salvation? How do you apply it? Emphasize each word of, the, of a short text like, the Lord is my shepherd. Or just think about that. The Lord is now my. So that's a good way to meditate. You can paraphrase the verse in your own words and you can memorize the verse. So you fix your mind and thoughts on the text and then you incline your heart to fully rest on, believe, and grasp the truths in the text and preach the text to your heart. That was Richard Baxter. May include sorrow or repentance or confession, cleansing, praise, rejoicing. How does it apply to us to my present circumstances? And um, then Owen says, meditation is thinking a truth out and then thinking a truth in. So you meditate on you think it, you think it out, you think about what it means. And then you think the truth in until it becomes big and sweet to the soul. So I would recommend find a little piece of scripture. You can't meditate on a whole chapter probably, but meditate on a little piece of scripture. If you'd like to have that, I can get that. I can do that for you. I think I just want to give you one caution. Be careful as we think about listening to God. Um, let God speak to you by His Spirit through His Word as you meditate on it. That's the safest way. Be careful about, um, let's see how I said this. Um, oh, one other, before I get to that. Um, this is in contrast with Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation says you empty your mind and just take on whatever comes. This is exactly the opposite. You don't empty your mind, you fill your mind with the, with the words of God and let Him uh, fill our thoughts. Uh, but be careful with the uh, emotional and mental impressions. I'm not saying that God can't speak to us, and I believe that the Bible teaches that, but that can be a very dangerous way to find um, God speaking to us. So I just say, be, be careful. As you say, God told me to do this, or God said to do that. I'm not saying he can't do that, but the further we get away from the written word of God, the more suspect we should be of those thoughts and feelings. So just be careful with, with those things. Okay, any thought about um, all that? All right, let's look at the next. Uh, oh, this, this interesting verse 3, For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. It's the same as pretty much as verse 7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. So, I didn't know what to do, do with that. But, um, anyway, 
So I need to speak up. <laughs> uh, and neither did the Hebrew guys. I always love it when you, when you see the footnote that says, the Hebrew is, is a, well, let's see, like here's one, the meaning of the Hebrew verse is un, uncertain. So when I see that, I think, oh good, we can just go past that one. <laughs> but, but one of the guys that I read, I can't remember who it, who it was, um, he said he thought that, notice um, verse 3, for a dream comes with much busyness. We've already seen that kind of thing, much busyness, working hard, working long. And he says that, that these are actually daydreams. This is just a guy where he's worked all day and he's tired or he doesn't have any coherent thoughts, so he's just daydreaming. And, that, and that's from working too much. And so he compares that to a fool's voice and it has too many words. So I think I gave you a, you know, a statement there. Dreams and words overwork and overspeech. Overproduction is the root problem in both cases. A heart attentive to God multiplies neither toil uh, nor words. So maybe that's an idea of what that verse means. Okay, now then, verses 4 through 7. Uh, this is an example of, um, of the caution of how we speak to God. And it has to do with vows. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that, but this is based on, um, in fact, it's almost an exact, uh, almost uh, an exact quotation of Deuteronomy 23, uh, 21 to 23. Let's just we'll turn back to that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We'll just get the context and look at it just for a minute and see how it may apply uh, to us. So Deuteronomy chapter 23. These vows apparently, um, they were uh, read what they're called temple vows. They were common to Old Testament worship. And it was when someone promised to consecrate certain things like maybe a sacrifice or money or a piece of property to the Lord. And maybe as a way of saying, I'm submitting this to you and I need your direction or your answer uh, uh, to prayer. So, um, the, the call, well, let's read Deuteronomy 23, 21. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So when you go back to Ecclesiastes 5, you'll see that all those, I think all those, uh, all those concepts are in this passage. So I'll read it to us now. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 through 7. When you vow a vow to God, do not, do not delay, <clears throat> do not delay, <laughs> do not delay pain paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let your mouth, let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? And for, when, for when dreams increase and your words grow, many there is vanity but God is the one you should fear so you can just see a few things a few things there uh, the vows are voluntary 
there's no commandment about giving a vow. So that's why you should be careful. If you're going to volunteer to make a vow, then be sure you're uh, sincere in the vow. You know, there are some vows in the New Testament. Um, I just had to look this up. In Acts 18, Paul put himself under some kind of a vow because he shaved his head to, to end the vow. And there was another time, I remember when he was coming to, to Jerusalem and and um, he was being accused of not of not following Jewish tradition. And the, the leaders there said, Hey, there's a couple of guys that are finishing up a vow, why don't you go pay their you know, pay their fee? And so there were there were some vows uh, in the Old Testament, kind of a carryover from the I mean the New Testament, kind of a carryover from the uh, 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 from uh, from Judaism. So vows are vows are voluntary. When we break a Vow, our mouth has led us into sin. So we're talking more about you know being careful with our words. Uh, God hears and takes seriously our vows to Him. Um, what did Jesus say about vows? Well, let's look at it. Matthew five. may not be exactly in the context of what these vows are in uh, that, that uh, Solomon's talking about in Ecclesiastes 5. But I think we learned something here uh, by reading this. Sometimes, um, some, well, what Jesus is concerned about here, and he talks about this other places, is that the Pharisees and others used vows as a insincere or as a way to get out of their accountability of making a, making a promise. So they didn't, want to, they didn't want to keep their word, but there were some ways they could twist, twist around the vows to get, to get out of it. But look at what Jesus says in Matthew 5, uh, verses 33 and following. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great God. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. So I think he's, I think he's aiming at this hypocritical oath-taking by the, by the uh, religious hypocrites during that time. So he's saying you don't need to take a vow. Like today, you know, I, I vow on a stack of Bibles or on my mother's birthday or whatever you know the reason that that we that that we may do those things sometimes um, and and Paul did that sometimes when he wrote to the you know to his uh, to the churches he took a kind of a, a vow um, but we do that because we want to impress on people that we're telling the truth that we're going to keep what we've said but look what Jesus says in verse uh, 37. He said, you don't need to do all that. Just let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So just, let's just be, let's keep our word, let's keep our promises. I like what uh, David said in, I think, Psalm 15. He said, uh, the godly person keeps his promises, keeps his word, even if it hurts. Okay, let's go back and finish up this uh, this section here. 
So verse 7, I think, is, is the banner that's over this whole section here. Uh, God is the one who you must fear. So I think it's another way of saying, like he said in verse 1, watch how you step, watch how you enter into God's, God's presence, and do it in the fear of the Lord. Well, that's a big, uh, that's a big topic. By the way, it is his conclusion. When we're going to get to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is, he says, this is the end of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is your duty. Fear God and keep, keep His commandments. So this is a theme all the way through. And of course, it was a theme through all of our studies so far in uh, the, the wisdom literature. Um, but what is the fear of God? Anybody want to? You're probably not going to mess it up. There's lots of things. Beginning of knowledge. Okay, okay, so that's good. The beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Good, Karen. All right. How do we, what, what, what else? I would uh, say it's our subjective response to his objective moral law. Oh, our subjective response to his objective moral law. Okay, we've got 21 minutes of <laughs> our objective response. Our subjective response to his. If we don't obey it perfectly. We should. Okay. We don't. So it's a subjective response. But so to the degree that we are fearing the Lord, we are obeying His law, His objective moral law. So it's, it's, it's kind of in direct proportion. Okay. The Good. less we fear Him, the less we obey. Okay. Good. Thank you, Brad. Anybody else want to give a thought about that? I want to um, quote a guy that I've grown to appreciate, Michael Reeves. He wrote a, this is just a little, little summary of a larger book he wrote called uh, Fear and Trembling, I think. And when he thinks about words to describe the fear of God, you could use reverence or awe or respect. He said, those are too, those are too gray and tepid. He said, I like the word tremble. And he finds this all the way, all the way through the scripture. Because trembling um, engages not only our mind and our thoughts, but it actually can engage our emotions and our, and our body. You know, when you tremble in the presence of, of I mean, an important person or, or the Yosemite know, pine, you know, the, the pine trees or whatever it may be. So he likes the word uh, tremble. And it's, it's to tremble in the presence of God because of his person and because of his work, because of who he is and what he does. So we, we tremble, and he makes a point, there is a, there is a sinful trembling, and that is for the unbeliever. Uh, they do tremble with fear of judgment. But as God's people, we don't, we may fear his discipline, but we do not fear his condemnation and his wrath because the Lord Jesus uh, took that for us. So trembling uh, at the majesty and glory of God um, and then knowing that this transcendent God, who he's in heaven and we're on earth, that this transcendent God has loved us with a love that is beyond our comprehension. And so we tremble at what God has provided for us, what he has done for us, and his love for us in Christ. And so uh, here's what, uh, uh, what Reeves says. <clears throat> the cross is the most fertile soil for the fear of God. The cross is the most fertile soil for the fear of God. Why? First, because the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from, from sinful fear. 
First, because the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from sinful fear. But more than that, it also cultivates the most exquisitely fearful adoration of the Redeemer. And he does this little thing. He says, um, at the cross, the grace of God serves as a breadcrumb trail leading us from the forgiveness itself to the forgiver. So when we come to the cross, we find those two things. We find forgiveness, and then we find it reveals to us uh, the forgiver. And then he quotes uh, John Bunyan, one of my favorite fellas. He says, oh, that a great God should be a good God. That this great God that we've worshiped with his majesty and his, <clears throat> and his awe and his person, that he's a great God, but that he could be a good God too. He's delighted in that. A good God to an unworthy and an undeserving and to a people that continually do what they can to provoke the eyes of his glory. This should make us tremble. Bunyan was insistent that the most powerful change of heart toward a true fear of God comes at the foot of the cross. With that striking wisdom, Bunyan wrote of how the cross simultaneously cancels the believer's guilt and increases our appreciation of just how vile our sinfulness is. So then he, this this little quote, if you'll bear bear with me, for God shall come. For if God shall come to you indeed and visit you with the forgiveness of sins, that visit removes the guilt, but it increases the sense of your filth, and the sense of this that God has forgiven a filthy sinner will make thee both rejoice and tremble. Oh, the blessed confusion that will then cover your face. So as we come before the cross, it corrects our perspective on us and on God. It makes us rejoice in Him. It makes us tremble at His majesty. Well, um, so I think just what that says to us is how vitally important that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day, maybe sometimes several times in the day, and to drink deeply from that fountain of salvation uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do, uh, our we will grow in the biblical perspective of the fear of God. Well, I thought this might happen, but uh, I'll just walk you through these next uh, few, few verses. We just have a, a few minutes. So I called it the systemic oppression, verses 8 and 9. And this is just but where he's, he's already done this idea of oppression back in chapter 4. And that was kind of one-on-one oppression. This this oppression is is like government oppression, government persecution or, or oppression is what he's talking about. Uh, what, what he's talking about here, he said, don't be surprised about it. Um, this is an intricate system, as he talks about in verse, uh, at the end of verse 8. Um, For the high official is watched by a higher one, and there's yet higher ones over them. Um, so different ways to interpret that. One is, the system's so corrupt that um, that the various officials watch after the ones below them, be sure they get their, their peace, or uh, the system becomes more corrupt as it goes up, so the guys at the top are making sure they get, that they take advantage of and, and oppress even those that are below them. Well, that sounds real cynical, and it, it is, because that doesn't mean every politician is corrupt or that every political system is corrupt. Um, Jeremy, you may have a different perspective on that with your engagement, but but there are good people in, in government. But uh, um, I 
forgot where I was going with that. Anyways, that's his little thing on corruption. And then he spends this time, oh, oh, I was just thinking, I wonder if Solomon is describing his own corrupt administration. Maybe so. He doesn't seem to be terribly sorry about it, but maybe that's maybe that's the context that he's you know that he's looking at. Okay, and then uh, verses 10 through 17. This is again just the love of money and its consequences. And I'll just read these. Uh, there are five. One author found five of uh, of these consequences of the love of money. Um, so verse verse 10. Money in itself does not bring satisfaction or fulfillment to the one who loves it. If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it is the emptiness that it leaves. Uh, verse 11, I mean, I should read that to you. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Wealth takes on a life of its own and starts to control the life of the one pursuing it. And uh, Wilson says, uh, Doug Wilson says, the more power they acquire, the more powerless they feel. And then, uh, verse 12 is interesting. Uh, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Why doesn't the full stomach of the rich let him sleep? Well, maybe just he's got indigestion. Um, but, but the poor man can have a full stomach too, but maybe he doesn't eat as rich a food or something as the rich man does. But there's probably more to that, isn't there? It's not just the turning of his stomach that keeps him sleeping, it's the turning of his heart and his mind. And we'll see here what a terrible uh, state of mind he's in. Okay, verse, uh, verse 12, uh, oh, I just did that. Well, look at this good quote here. Whenever affluence and indulgence join hands, the result is sleepless nights not from overwork, but from overeating. And then verses 13 and 14. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand that is nothing uh, to leave for him. Wealth can disappear instantly. It's, it was toiled for and worried over. Now it is spoiled. Now it has spoiled his life twice over first in the getting, then in the losing. And then the final one is death is the final blow. And I wish, I wish we had time to read the passage in 1 Timothy. We're still going to get there someday. We tried to get there last week, but didn't, didn't do it. But look at the sadness of this man in verse 16. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? For over all his days, he eats, let's look at the sadness. He eats, in, he eats in darkness in much vexation or agitation and uh, sickness and anger. That, that word anger means uh, resentment. Resentment toward God, perhaps. Resentment toward his circumstances. Well, hey, Rick. There's a Puritan quote that summarizes this little section well, I think. It says, the air we breathe will as soon fill a hungry belly as creature comforts will satisfy the spirit. The air, the air we breathe will... Whereas will as soon fill a hungry belly uh, as creature comforts will satisfy the spirit. Okay, good. The air we breathe will as soon fill the belly as 
creature comforts will satisfy the spirit. That's good. Yeah, thank you. Well, we're going to just finish up here literally in a minute. So verses 18 through 20, he returns to one of these carpe diem, seize the day. Seize the day because God has provided for you and delight in his goodness and, um, and enjoy that eating that meal or doing that work. Um, it's, it's, the counter, it's the counterpoint to what we've just read about the man that makes work his life and makes love and makes the love of his money his, his goal. But there's something different here. Um, he's done this a couple of times before, but I think maybe we'll just look at verse 20 and then it'll be time for us to go. Um, for he will not remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's another one of those difficult verses to, that the commentators don't really know exactly what to do with. But I want you to notice something's different. Before he's been observing God's goodness, and now he's experiencing it. That God actually, the Lord actually comes to him and gives him his joy. So there's a relationship developing here that we haven't seen before. And, and the, kind of the way this is, this is interpreted at times is that he won't much remember the days of his life. That is, he won't brood over the days of his life, whether they were good or bad, because God has come to him and he's brought him his joy. And I thought about what Jesus said in John 15. After telling us how to abide in his love, he said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So the Lord himself is now coming to this man, to a Solomon, to make this joy real. Well, um, uh, Pastor Jeff will be back next week, so I'll go wherever you need to go. And we'll, uh, we'll go in chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes. Thank you.